and we're in the middle of chapter 25 where we're realizing that we can bank in on this incredible resource that we have within ourselves. And what's this resource that we have within ourselves? It's our core. Our core self is infinite. It is unlimited. It is unbounded. And we can tap into it at any moment. We are able to reach this level of clarity at any moment. So let's backtrack and remind ourselves how clarity was able to be reached. We said one thing. A Jew, by his nature, is unable to separate from Hashem. His nature impels him and compels him to stay, remain attached to Hashem at every price, even at the price of life. A Jew is never willing to separate from Hashem. Then, if we remember that every single sin separates a Jew from Hashem, we really should be unable to sin. The only reason why a Jewish person ever violates the divine will is because he either forgets that he has this love for Hashem or because he is overcome by, both of these conditions are insanity, but either that he forgets that he has this love for Hashem or he's overcome by insanity thinking that there's a difference between one sin and another. That one sin, the sin of idol worship, separates a Jew from Hashem and every other sin does not separate a Jew from Hashem. I didn't want to ask you that, that way. You know, when you say separate from Hashem, even the people that I sin all the time, we always say they have this nefesh, this nefesh, this something deep inside, even when we see through the sin. So what, every time you're saying like separate from Hashem, I had like, even last week, I had like, I don't get it. Yes, and let's remind ourselves what we said. There were two kinds of sins. Can there are those sins that, that carry the penalty of death at the hands of heaven or excision. Those sins cause a permanent separation. It's called kares. The soul is cut out from its source. They're separated from Hashem. Wait, wait, I, the, there are certain sins right. you, that carry the penalty it. of death at the hands of heaven or kares. Those yeah. sins, when a Jew does one of those sins, idol and um, idol worship, there's, there's actually 36 sins that yeah, carry yeah, that. Okay? okay, Their soul is cut off from its source. That means that even after the sin is over, they're still separated until they do teshuva. There are other sins that they too, like every other, like these more severe sins, so cut the... So the is not there? No, no, that's not what it means. The nitzot is there, but it's now not connected to its higher source. Hi. Hi. It's not connected to its higher source. Okay? When a Jew does teshuva, a Jew can do teshuva even from those most terrible sins. It's like the altar, but compares it somewhere else in Chassidus. It's like reconnecting a head to the body after the head has been cut off. Imagine such a medical cure. They can reattach the head after the head has been cut off. A person who does a sin that has the penalty of kares, their soul gets cut off. But they can be reattached once they do teshuva. And not just that. This only happens to one level of the soul. This is what we discussed also previously in chapter 24. There are two levels. The Jewish people are called Yaakov. The Jewish people are called Yisrael. He says, Ki Hashem amo The Jewish people are a portion of Hashem. Yaakov is the rope of his inheritance. At the level of Yaakov, indeed there could be a cutting off. At the level of Yisrael, there's no such thing as cutting off. At this place, the Jew is attached forever. But in the conscious self, yes, there has been a detachment. So we are able to get rid of the spirit of insanity by remembering that by our very nature, we never ever want to be separate from Hashem. 
That's just who we are. Our, our self says, I never want to be separated from it, ever. And then, if we remember that every sin detaches us from Hashem, then clarity is just that thought away. All we have to do is remember, I never, ever, by my nature, even at the price of life, would not want to be detached from Hashem. And two, every single sin detaches me from Hashem, God forbid. Who would want to do that? That's where we got now. So we're trying to bank into this resource that we have that we are unlimited. We can achieve the infinite. Do you know what it says? I heard a rabbi speaking recently, and he shared a most amazing thought. He said like this, B'Tselem Elohim Asa Esha Adam. Man was created in the image of God. In the image of God, really? I thought Hashem doesn't have an image. After the giving of the Torah, Hashem warned the people through Moshe saying, remember that you did not see any image. Don't create an image for yourself. We didn't see any image, and yet man was created in the image of Hashem? Yes, exactly that. Hashem has no image, and we have no image. What is the definition in Hebrew to the English of image? Is there a different kind of concept involved there? Because, you know, sometimes Hebrew has different meanings. Than... Here, you can take it in different forms. You can say, like Hashem conducts the world through the tense if he wrote, and so the human soul also has tense if he wrote. But now we're taking it in a different way to, to bring us, no, not physically, never ever physically, exactly. but our physical body does reflect the divine name. Our, our, na- our body is in the shape of Yud K Vav K. But not to get sidetracked, I want to just say, <laughs> I want to just say that um, just for this thought, that the Psalm Elohim Asa Asa Ada means man was created in the image of Hashem. Hashem is unlimited. We are not limited. Hashem has, you can't say Hashem is confined to this one thing. Guess what? We have a divine soul. We are never, ever confined. We should never think of ourselves as we are confined. The Midrash speaks about seven different stages as a per, of a person's life. Midrash on Kohelas, where Shlom HaMelech says, Hevel HaVolem. He says, everything is vanity of vanities. And he takes these seven vanities, and the Midrash compares it to seven stages in a person's life. At the age of one, they're like a king, where everybody loves them, hugs them, and kisses them all the time. At the age of two, they're like a pig, excuse me, wallowing in the dirt. Age of 10, they're like a kid goat. Age of 20, they're like a horse, neighing and trying to, you know, get married. And at the age of, as moving higher, it's a donkey carrying the burden. Then like a dog getting so bold in order to win bread for their children. And finally, in their old age, they're like a monkey. A monkey. So the Kutzke Rebbe speaks about this. And he said, what is a monkey? A monkey is a master mimic. It just copies. At the old age already, a person is not reinventing themselves anymore. They're saying, this is the person I am because I created myself all along, and now I'm just copying the self that I created. We are not limited. We're created with Salam Elohim. We should never get to a place where we're like a monkey, just copying the place where we think, I can't move beyond ourselves. We have to remember that we have this infinite potential. And what is hell? Like we said last time, hell, one of the explanations to realize the shame that's involved in hell is realizing what your potential was and what you actually did with that potential. There's a story of the Nitziv. The Nitziv was the Rosh Yeshiva of a famous Yeshiva, the Velazhina Yeshiva in Russia for almost 40 years. And he wrote a few important Jewish works. He was a profound genius. And once after completing his work, the Hamik Shaila, he made a siyam, a su'udas mitzvah, and he invited people to the celebration that he finished this work. And he said, this is actually a double celebration. I want to tell you about this. And he said that 
When he was a young boy, like the age of 13, he went to sleep at night. His parents didn't realize that he was not yet sleeping. And he hears his mother crying and his father talking. And he's wondering, what are they talking about? And he realized they're talking about him. What are they saying? You know, in the olden days, after a certain age, if you weren't fit for yeshiva, you, made, you did something with yourself. You didn't just sit there and, and warm the bench. If you weren't learning, you know, after age 13, that's it. You went to become a carpenter, you went to become a farmer, an artisan, whatever you were doing, but you didn't just sit at yeshiva after a certain age. So he hears his father telling his mother, listen, I tried everything with this kid. I tried to bribe him. I admonish him. Nothing is working. That's it. He has to make something of himself. Tomorrow, I'm taking him to a carpenter. He's going to become an apprentice. And he heard his parents speaking, and he came running out of bed, and he said, no, 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 give me one more chance, I'm going to try. And look what became of him, right? And he said, like, he said he, making us to this mitzvah, celebrating not just the completion of the work, but that he had the opportunity to hear his parents' conversation and change his course in life. He said, what would have become of him? After 120 or however long he lived, he would go on to the next world, and he would have been an honest man. That was his values. He would have gone to shul in the morning, daven, learned some Torah, then went to work. After work, he would have come back to shul, learned a little bit as halacha mandates, and he would have think himself of it as a very upright person, and then he would come to the next work. They would say, listen, you made a lot of benches, and you made a lot of nice bookshelves, and this was very nice. You studied Torah, and you were observant, but where's the hamik shaila? Where's all those works that you were supposed to come up with? And he would say, me? But I'm just a simple carpenter. However could I have come up with those works? Thank God that he was able to tap into his potential. He had this potential, and they would have asked him, where was your potential? And he wouldn't even have imagined that he had that potential. So we have to remember that we have infinite potential within us. We, have, we are created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of Hashem. And that's what the author was trying to put us in touch with right over here in this chapter. We think of ourselves that we can't do this, we can't do that. Get that out of your dictionary, get it out of your vocabulary. Our potential is unlimited. And so, with this in mind, we're moving forward into the chapter. So, we're on page two. And we were reminding ourselves that it's always within reach to serve Hashem with love and with fear by virtue of this divine nature that we have. And we can conquer our evil inclination at any time by tapping into this resource that we have. And this was in two ways. We got up to Hain Bivchina Surmira. Surely then, it is far easier to subdue one's appetites since this entails much lighter suffering than death, which a person would willingly endure so as not to be torn away from Hashem. Sorry. Of surely then, it is far easier to subdue one's appetites since this entails much lighter suffering than death, which he would willingly endure so as not to be torn away from Hashem. Mastering his evil inclination is far easier. Hain bifchina sur both in the category of turning away from evil and in the category of doing good, which we're going to explore further on in the chapter, meaning refraining from sin and observing the positive commandments respectively. So generally, we use these terms from, from Tehillim, David HaMelech said, Turn away from evil and do good. Turning away from evil means refraining from doing bad, and asetov means doing good. So in these two categories of staying away from violating any prohibition and plus doing every possible pro a commandment, positive commandment that Hashem commanded us, both of the, so that means in the category of turn away from evil, the category of do good, we are very much able to tap into our resource and master the inclination at any time. 
אפילו מעבר הקלה של דברי ספרים שלא לעבור על רצוני הסברך מאחר שנפרד בה מייחודי ואחדוסי כמוי בעבוד זר ממש בשעס מייסה. To be specific, even when it concerns a minor rabbinic prohibition, one can easily master his evil inclination so as not to transgress Hashem's will. Since at the time that he does a forbidden act, he thereby becomes separated from Hashem's unity just as much as through actual idolatry as explained in the previous chapters. It follows, therefore, that one ought to display the same strength and resisting the temptation for such a sin as he would display even to the point of sacrificing his life and rejecting idolatry, since this too separates him from Hashem. Hi! So, remember that we said that we're trying to arrive at this clarity, but how are we comparing idol worship to every other sin? What's the difference between idol worship and most other sins? Idol worship tears a Jew away from Hashem permanently or unless he does teshuva. If a person does a different sin, one that does not carry the penalty of excision or death at the hands of heaven, he's separated from Hashem at that moment. Remember we said that his animal soul unites with the sitra achra at the klipa at that time. He's totally separated from Hashem. He's more distanced from Hashem than the klipa itself. And his divine soul at that time is in a state of profound exile. It's like taking the king's head and dipping it in a toilet full of filth. That's how terrible it is at the time of sin. That's with every sin. However, the difference is after the sin. After the sin, if it's idol worship or another sin that carries the penalty of kares, his soul is cut off. And so the animal soul does not return to the holiness of the divine soul. It remains separate from Hashem. Whereas other sins, after the sin is over, There's a healing going on, and the king's head is no longer dipped in the privy full of filth. The animal soul is no longer so distanced from Hashem. Now it returns to be closer to the holiness of the divine soul, even if there hasn't been teshuva. So that, why are we saying that there's no difference? Why are we saying it's just like idol worship? There's a difference. The difference is that after idol worship, the sin, soul has been cut off. And with other sins, after, after the sin is done, The divine soul returns back to its state of being intact, even though it's been a little bit severed. But nevertheless, generally it's intact. And even the animal soul goes back to being close to the holiness of the divine soul. So how could we say that there's no difference? So here we're going to read what it says inside, and then we're going to move forward. There would appear to be a difference, however, between idolatry and the minor sin with which we are dealing. With idolatry, the sinner remains separated from Hashem even after the idolatrous act, as explained in the previous chapter. Whereas with the minor sin, the separation lasts only as long as the sinful act itself. The Alter Rebbe refutes this argument in the next, par- next paragraph by stating that in the case of idolatry too, there is a means of ensuring that the separation from Hashem brought on thereby and immediately after the act. The method is teshuva, repentance. Yet despite the fact that this resource is available to him, a Jew would rather be killed rather than practice idolatry, for he cannot accept Even a momentary separation from Hashem, he may now apply the same consideration to refraining from even a minor sin, since it too imposes upon him a separation from Hashem, albeit a momentary one. Can you explain? Yes. So what we're saying is like this. Okay, we're saying that the difference between idol worship and other sins is that after idol worship, the soul is cut off. After another sin, the soul returns back. So the altar says one second. Idol worship, the soul is cut off only as long as the person didn't do teshuva. Uh-huh. Idol worship too could be temporary. 
It's not just other sins are temporary. Other sins are temporary even without teshuva. Idol worship is temporary so long as there hasn't been teshuva. So the person can save themselves. They can say, they're going to do this idol worship. They'll be cut off. But it will only be momentary. It will only be temporary because after the act, they're going to do teshuva. But a Jew doesn't do that. That's not the Jewish reflex. Bring an example. Because everything is idol worship. Everything is idol worship, but the difference is like this. Let's say a person eats non-kosher food, God forbid. Okay? So at the time they do the sin. At the time of the sin, they're separated from Hashem. After the sin is over, they're no longer separated from Hashem. Their divine soul remains intact in its connection with its source above. And the animal soul returns from its unity with a klipa and the sitra achra and comes closer again to the divine soul. It's no longer distance from Hashem. It's only the time that they're disobeying Hashem at that time that they are experiencing this separation. Okay. Idol worship too, they experience separation. But the difference is in idol worship, the soul is getting cut off. Friendly. But let's say somebody is cognizant, okay? And they bow down to an idol, God forbid. When they bow down to the idol, their soul is separated from Hashem. It's cut off. So in both instances, the, the soul is being separated from Hashem. But in the instance when the soul is getting cut off, it doesn't naturally go back, but it does go back with teshuva. So theoretically, every single sin could be temporary. Every single case of separation from Hashem could be temporary. Some cases doesn't need teshuva, and some case, of course we always need teshuva, but to reinstate the relationship doesn't need teshuva. And in some cases, it needs teshuva. But every single case could be teshuva. So there could be teshuva and the soul could come back. So we can't say that the reason why a Jew will not bow down to an idol is because this is permanent. And this other, other sins he will do because those are temporary. Because idol worship too could cause only a temporary situation. A Jew could make a calculation for himself. He could say, he's just going to save his life right now. He'll bow down to the idol and afterwards... He'll do teshuva. This too could be temporary. There has to be a different reason why a Jew is not bowing down to the idol. And that's because he never wants to be separate from Hashem. But it's not so simple. And we're going to discuss it. But separate from Hashem, we can also eat treif and be separate from Hashem. That's right. It's the same thing. Why wouldn't do it? Exactly. But the person who's eating treif is not feeling the same reaction as the person who bows down to an idol. When a person bows down to an idol, idol, they're saying there's another God. It's so clear that this is an instance saying separate from Hashem. A person eating non-kosher, they don't see it that way. They don't see that it's separating it from Hashem. That's the thing. It's not invoking that fiery reaction because they don't see it as separation from Hashem. So remember that teshuva too could be, that, that idol worship too could only be a temporary separation. <coughs> okay, wait, yet. Yet one may argue that in reality this is no option at all. The Talmud states that when one sins because he relies on subsequent teshuva, Hashem does not allow him to practice teshuva. Since he cannot rely on this, he must sacrifice his life so as not to remain permanently separated from Hashem through idolatry. With a minor sin, however, the separation from Hashem that it causes is in any case temporary, even without recourse to teshuva. We are th th thus, once again, left with our original question. How can it be said that the same fear of separation from Hashem that motivates a Jew to sacrifice his life with regard to idolatry can also motivate him to refrain from even a minor sin? The two cases are altogether different. The former causes a lasting separation and the latter a momentary one. Okay, we're going to look at the words of the Altar Rebbe and then we'll understand what they're saying over here. 
Although the Talmud states that he who sins says, I will sin and repent. Sin and repent is not given an opportunity to do so. We're back to square one. They can't say they're going to bow down to the idol and then to Teshuvah because the Talmud says like this. If somebody says, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent. They do not give him the opportunity to do so. So he can't say, I will sin and repent. Like being He's not going to say, he'll bow down to the idol, and then he'll do teshuva afterwards, and then it's only going to be a temporary separation. That's Christianity. You go, and then you go to the priest and say, Holy <laughs> Father of Sin, right. and then you're fine. So that's exactly that's what Talmud exactly says. There's no such thing as that. If a person... different than Christianity. There's no such thing as that. If a person can't say, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent, because they're not, he's not given the opportunity to do teshuva. So let's discuss this thought, explore this thought. Why is this the case? Rabbi Steinzel says very, something very poignant. A person who says, I will sin and repent, always assumes that he's going to have the opportunity to right. do so. Right. And because he always thinks there's going to be a chance to do so, practically speaking, he never does it. It's like, my diet starts tomorrow. Tomorrow is never. He thinks, oh, you know, I'll just do one more thing before I do teshuva. Okay, he just did himself in. He thinks that he's going to have the chance to do teshuva. So practically speaking, he never does teshuva. However, if a person does a sin and he can't live with himself afterwards, there's no such thing as tomorrow. Right now, he has to do teshuva. He's going to seize any opportunity that he can to grab this little crack of eye of a needle and open it up as wide as the palace gates. Okay, so that's one reason. Another reason is, this is attributed to the Baal Shem Tov, that a teshuva is because a person reached a higher level of consciousness. If he knew then what he knows now, he never would have done it. And that's what allows him to correct the past. His higher level of consciousness allows him to reach back into the past and change it. Because with his new level of consciousness, he rectifies the past. If I knew then what I know now, I never would have done that. Or, so that's just that, but or, if a person, even he, he sins willingly, but he didn't know he had the possibility of doing teshuva, his new awareness is he sinned willingly, but now he knows he can do teshuva. And this higher awareness that he can do teshuva allows him to do teshuva. But if he sinned willingly and also knowing that he can do teshuva, thus he reached the highest level of consciousness that he could reach. Where is he going to reach back now and do teshuva? He can't. He, he knew, knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew he could do teshuva. There's no higher level of consciousness from this higher plane that he can reach backward and retrieve the situation and correct it. That's something else. Another also, thing. No guarantee he's going to live. There's no guarantee that that's true. And now there's another thing. We have a principle that goes like this: Ein kategor naasesanegor. That means the accuser cannot become the defender. And that's said in the high holidays. That's right. Right. Ein kategor The accuser cannot become the defender. What caused the person to do the sin? Teshuva. He was relying on teshuva, and that's why he sinned. The same teshuva that caused him to sin, the accuser, cannot now become the defender and take him out of it. So he's really, really stuck. If a person said that he's going to sin and then repent, he's not allowed the opportunity to do teshuva. Okay. So how are we going to get out of this one? We're back to square one. teshuva. <laughs> Yet this merely means that he does, Hashem does not aid in such a sinner, granting him the auspicious occasion to repent. 
Generally, Hashem grants one who wishes to repent the necessary power and the opportune moment to realize his good intentions. However, when one's, when one's reliance on teshuva formed the basis for his sin, he is lent neither the strength nor the opportunity. The Talmud tells us, Balatahar Messianlai. Somebody who comes to return to do teshuva, to purify himself, he is aided from above. If somebody says, I will sin and return, he's not granted the opportunity to teshuva, means he's not granted the opportune moment, and he's not granted assistance from above. Now, the Zohar tells us that every single day, a voice issues forth, a proclamation is made. Shuvu banim shevavim, return, O wayward children. When this proclamation is made, our souls are stirred, and we want to do teshuva. Even a person who said, I will sin and do teshuva, even somebody who, about whom it says, we do not give him the opportunity to teshuva, he too hears this announcement, his soul hears this announcement, he too is stirred to do teshuva, but the difference between him and everybody else is that he suddenly finds huge obstacles, and he, it's difficult for him within his soul to do teshuva. It's hard for him to stick with it, so he's moved to do teshuva. He gets thoughts of teshuva, but he can't persist and stick with the teshuva. However, Aval, im If, however, he seizes the opportunity himself and repents, nothing can stand in the way of teshuva, of repentance. Thus, even in the case of idolatry, one could conceivably rely on teshuva to prevent a lasting separation from Hashem. So while it's true that he's not given special opportunities to teshuva, if he nevertheless perseveres on his own, Resisting all the obstacles, anybody can do teshuva. This is what the Rambam himself says. The Rambam classifies different sins that are so bad that a person is not, is not given the opportunity to do teshuva. But yet, the Rambam says, if a person nevertheless goes ahead and does teshuva, he's considered a full ball teshuva. So he too can do teshuva. So he's not given the opportunity. I'm sorry, what? Freedom of choice. There's always freedom of choice. So here he's not giving special opportunity. It's made more difficult for him. But if he presses forward and does teshuva, teshuva is still there for him. And the Rebbe speaks about this because what about the person who, it's the accuser now becoming the defendant. The teshuva that he does by pressing forward is not the same teshuva that he relied on when he sinned. This is a whole higher level of teshuva. This teshuva, this is a higher consciousness. Pressing forward, seizing the opportunity by himself is a higher level of teshuva. And from this space, he can reach back and rectify the situation. Okay, va'afal pichain. Kol ish Yisrael muchan umezuman limsar nafshay al-kadushas Hashem. Nevertheless, every Jew is prepared and ready to suffer martyrdom for the sanctification of Hashem's name, and will not perform an idolatrous act literally to bow down before an idol, even temporarily with the intention of repenting afterwards, indicating that the fear of even a temporary separation from Hashem is sufficient motivation for self-sacrifice. So what's causing the Jew to give up his life for Hashem is not because this is going to be a permanent separation. It's because in this situation, it's so clear that he's going to be separate from Hashem. That's why he's not doing it. It's not about this is permanent and this is temporary. This is not a consideration here. And what's the reason why? Because 
This is because of the divine light which is clothed in his soul, as explained above, which does not come within the realm of time at all, but transcends time. And therefore, in relation to this light, every action is eternal. Furthermore, as is known, this divine light rules and dominates time. Not only is it not governed by the laws of time, but contrary to that, it governs it. Thus, an action which took but a moment and judged by temporal standards has no value can become more momentous than one which takes longer. Since the divine light clothed within the soul transcends and dominates time, it does not permit any separation from Hashem, no matter how short its duration. Okay. Why does a person sacrifice his life so as not to be separate from Hashem? Because of the light of Hashem that is clothed within his soul. So this self-sacrifice is a product of the light of Hashem that's in his soul. Now let's look at the two terms we're using to speak about the relationship of this light of Hashem in his soul and time. One, Einai bevchinas zman klal. Ella That means it does not come within the realm of time at all, but transcends time. In this space, in this relationship of the light of Hashem with time, there's no such thing as time. It does not come to be under the realm of time. It is eternal. To this eternal light of Hashem, these terms, short time, long time, temporary, eternal, meaningless. At this space, everything is eternal. A temporary separation is eternal. An eternal separation is eternal. To the light of Hashem, there makes no difference. There's no time in this space. Hashem created time. Time is recreated anew. It's a creation just like every other creation. At this space, everything is eternal. So this is why the, the person is sacrificing their life, not because this is temporary and this is, and this is eternal. None of that. At this space, it's meaningless. Everything is eternal. That's one thing. This light of Hashem transcends time, and therefore, here... Everything is eternal. Short time, long time, meaningless, irrelevant. It means nothing. Okay? And then the other thing is, Shalit umayshal alav. It rules and dominates time. At this space, this is already the light of Hashem as it relates to time. But as it relates to time, it rules and dominates time. Meaning, in terms of time, if we're going to judge things by the standard of time, then duration would be the scale by which we judge things. This is a longer amount of time, and this is a shorter amount of time, when we're strictly governed by time. But when we govern time, the light of Hashem governing time means that something that is much longer and something that is much shorter, the shorter amount of time could prove to be much more weighty than the longer amount of time. Duration is not the measure here. Because the light of Hashem rules time. So even though this something is only temporary, but it can carry much stronger weight than something that is for a longer amount of time. So at this point where he faces this decision, this decision is so weighty from this place where the light of Hashem governs time that time is not of the issue anymore. This thing is so strong. There's not thinking about what's going to happen a moment afterwards. All I could think about is what's happening right now. The discussion until now is centered on the category of turning away from evil. The Alt Rebbe showed how one could utilize his hidden love of Hashem in refraining from sin. He now goes on to the category of doing good, discussing the use of the hidden love leading one to perform all the positive commandments. So let me first wrap up what we said until now before we move on to this next section. So we said that at any moment we have within us the power to remove this haze, this cloud, this insanity that causes us to think that there's a difference between idol worship and other sins. Because every sin separates a person from Hashem. And the reason why a Jew will not bow down to an idol is not because 
idol worship is permanent and other sins are temporary because idol worship too could be temporary. If a person does teshuva afterwards, granted it's going to be more difficult teshuva, but it could be teshuva. It could be done. The reason why he does not bow down to an idol is because the light of Hashem that shines in his soul, that doesn't want to be separated from Hashem. A moment in this space is meaningless. This eternal space, a moment means nothing. Everything, even something temporary, is eternal. And even if we consider time to be something, time itself is, is we can move around with it, we can play with it. Something that's much smaller can carry much heavier weight than something that's been for a very long time. So the reason why a Jew can now tap into the space in himself is because he has to call to mind that he never wants to be separated from Hashem. He's willing to die so as not to be separated from Hashem. And if he remembers that every single sin separates it from Hashem, that's it. That's all he has to remember. He, by his nature, could never be separated from Hashem. If not for the spirit of insanity, it would be impossible for him to sin. It's only because insanity overtakes him that he thinks there's a difference between idol worship and other sins. It's not because of temporary or permanent. In this space, it's all the same. So now we know how to tap into this space to keep us back, to hold ourselves, master our inclination, and resist. Say, hey, pains of death are much harder than resisting temptation. And I would be willing to suffer the pains of death so as not to be separated from Hashem, even for a moment. So why go ahead and do this thing now that causes separation from Hashem? It's total insanity. Okay? Now, as we move into this next section, we're going to be learning about how to employ this power in doing good. This new section, I'm just telling you right now, will make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that's the point. It's about pushing ourselves beyond our limit. As we move to this next section, it's going to be pushing yourself more than even is what is required of you. And hey, anything good that you want to achieve is going to take some level of uncomfortability. For some reason, all of growth or most of growth is accompanied with pain. Even from a child, you feel so bad. The poor little baby is up all night teething. Why? Just a little baby, but that's part of the process for some reason. Growing pains. The little kids, they get it in their knees and they're crying. Oh, my knee hurts. They're growing. Growing hurts. In fact, sometimes if we're not, if we're not feeling uncomfortable, sometimes we don't grow. I heard this really great analogy from Rabbi Torsky. He said that he was reading about lobsters, how they grow. So they are in this like hard shell and they have this soft body inside and the body starts expanding and they get so uncomfortable that they have to shed their own shell in order to get into a bigger shell now. If they wouldn't feel uncomfortable, they wouldn't be shelling, shedding their smaller shell in order to now be in a bigger space. So uncomfortability, pain, that's part of the growth process. Do we love it? No, we don't. But that's that's just part of it. And if we kind of just don't want to move past who we are, it's because we're afraid of being uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable, but hey, it's nothing to be afraid of. Did you ever hear about how they train fleas? So they, they put fleas in like a jar. They put a lid on top. And the fleas jump, and they keep hitting their head on the lid. After a while, they don't want to hit their head, so they train themselves never to jump past till that level. Then they take the lid off the jar, and the fleas still don't jump higher than the lid, even though there's no lid anymore. Because they condition themselves that they don't want to be uncomfortable, and so they don't jump any higher. We're not fleas. 
<laughs> sometimes we're going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. It's not fun, but we know that that's part of the condition of life is pushing ourselves just beyond our comfort limits. Like any weight trainer will tell you, if you want to build more muscle, you're going to have to rip some muscle fibers and then new stronger muscle grow from ripping the previous muscle. So this is where we're moving right now into pushing ourselves to do more than is comfortable for us. Likewise, in the category of doing good, one can employ the power of his hidden love to strengthen himself like a lion with might and determination of the heart. Against the evil nature which weighs down his body and casts over him a sloth, which stems from the element of earth that is in his animal soul. So there's two ways of looking at the words, stay away from evil and do good. Generally speaking, the most standard way is, turn away from evil means don't do any sin. means do every positive command that you're supposed to do. On another level, you can look at it differently because neglecting to do a positive command is then a sin. And that too falls under the category of Swarmeira. A person is supposed to um, bring the carbon Pesach, let's say. They neglected to do bring the carbon Pesach, they did a sin. They still fall under the category of Swarmeira. In this way of looking at things, Asetov is not anymore about doing mitzvahs, it's about doing mitzvahs in the best possible way, going beyond what is required of you. And this is what we're learning right here, over here right now. The examples that the Alter Rebbe will give us to push ourselves to do good are not examples of, you know, make sure you keep Shabbos, make sure you eat kosher. It's not that. He's going to say, do things that are beyond your comfort level, even if it's not a sin if you don't push yourself. So that's why I was warning you a little bit to warm us up and tell us what's coming our way. Now, what happens? Why doesn't a person push themselves as much as possible to do things in the best way possible? Because they're overcome by sloth, laziness, heaviness. And this comes from the evil inclination. The evil inclination, the nef- or let's say the nefesh of the the animal soul, just like every physical thing is comprised of the four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, so is every spiritual thing comprised of these four elements, and our animal soul is comprised as well of four elements, fire, water, air, and earth, as we explored in chapter one. Laziness comes from the element of earth. So anytime that we, earth, we said anger and pride come from fire. The lust for pleasure comes from water. Frivolity and boastfulness, that comes from the element of air. And laziness and melancholy that comes from earth, and that's what we're battling here right now. What stops us from doing anything more than what we have to, what, to push ourselves to the limit, to be, have alacrity and do things with joy and swiftness? That's the element of earth that's casting a sloth over us and making us feel like, uh, I'll just do what I need to do. I don't want to go any more than what I have to. Mm-hmm. This laziness prevents him from exerting his body energetically with every type of effort and strain in the service of God that entails effort and toil. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up what we said until now, and we're going to give the examples next week at class. 
So not only can we tap into this tremendous power in order to resist temptation, we can even tap into this tremendous power in order to push ourselves and do more to move beyond our comfort zone and serve Hashem, not just regularly at the basic level, but to push ourselves to serve Him with alacrity and to push ourselves beyond our comfort level. This too, this idea that we have, this place within our soul that doesn't want us to be separate from Hashem, this same place can encourage us to go be above and beyond what we were originally planning or our comfort level. So that's where we are right now, and I'm opening up for questions or discussion.